This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Historia Ecclesia. This is episode number 15, and today Dr. Daryl G. Hart concludes his series on J. Gresham Machen with a lesson on assessing this great figure in American Presbyterianism. We didn't get to 13 lessons, but um, that's okay. So today I want to finish off this series on Machen. And um, so I have a number of reflections having to do with how do we assess Machen and how, how um, great he is. I personally think Machen was great, um, but I spent a lot of time with him, and that's partly to justify Justify my own existence is to consider someone with whom you spend so much time um, great. But I, I do think there are, are objective reasons for thinking this. Um, so the first, the first um, question is uh, to look at the way historians have assessed Machen. And one, one barometer of, of historians' assessment is um, to look at a reference work on American history. Uh, who do you include if you're going to do a biographical uh, dictionary of American history. Um, you, would, you would think you'd include the most important people. So, but you have a fixed number of pages in this reference work, and um, does everyone get the same number of words? Is this an egalitarian reference work where everybody gets 500 words or 1,000 words, or are there different uh, words depending on the relative importance of the, of the person? Now, so I just was curious... Um, haven't actually written the article on Machen for the American National Biography reference work uh, by, the, or, by um, Oxford University Press, which was, is the updated version of the Dictionary of American Biography, which is kind of the standard reference work. So the good news about this reference work is that Machen makes it into the dictionary, which is um, Something because he's the only Orthodox Presbyterian in the American National Biography. Which, so you know, as, as great as we think Van Til and Murray and Stonehouse and Young are, we even have plaques here for Stonehouse and Young. They didn't make it into the ANB. Um, only Machen did. Um, so, how many words does Machen get? Well, you can see if you look down, um, he finishes. Do I even have him there? <laughs> Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a problem. Uh, he gets 1325 words. So, but you could see the first three there. Washington gets, you would expect, the first president and a president to get a lot of words, and he gets 8,025 words. And just to give some other perspective on a Presbyterian who's come up in the class, William Jennings Bryan, a, a, another conservative, battling liberalism in the 1920s, he gets 3,500 words. And one of the reasons for that is because he ran for president three times on the Democratic, Democratic ticket. Lost, of course, but still, there's a certain greatness to Brian that doesn't factor into the, some of these other figures. H.L. Mencken, one of my favorite authors of the early 20th century, only gets 2650. Um, so he doesn't even get as much as Brian, so Brian gets maybe the last laugh on Mencken in this regard, even though Mencken uh, wrote a pretty scathing obituary of Brian. And then you can see Jonathan Edwards. When we took a look at other, other uh, religious figures, 
Edwards gets 5,100. That's actually pretty impressive. Um, Hodge gets 29.25. Um, so if you want to talk about a secular bias, perhaps in the historical profession, you wouldn't necessarily see it with those kinds of uh, numbers given to two theologians. Um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, perhaps Machen's chief foe, gets more than Machen, 16.50. Warfield gets 15.25. Robert Speer, unfortunately, just, just beats Machen with 13.75. And McCartney, who was a conservative Presbyterian pastor in, in Philadelphia, one of the original board members at Westminster, gets 1025. And Erdman, Charles Erdman, um, with whom Machen had many conflicts at Princeton Seminary, only gets 850. Ha uh-huh. ha. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, so, so that's one, one estimate of, of a person's greatness, perhaps, is to look at the the number of words they get in a standard reference work. And again, it's, some, it's something to keep in mind that no other Orthodox Presbyterian makes it into uh, this, this, this diff- reference work. Um, now, what about uh, the estimate of church historians? And here I have, I think, on the outline, yes, Machen the Meanie. Um, and the reason for saying that is uh, Robert Motes Miller, um, a historian at North Carolina State University, I believe, maybe or maybe it was the University of North Carolina. Um, he wrote a biography of, of, uh, of Harry Emerson Fosdick, and he reviewed Marsden's uh, book on fundamentalism, George Marsden's book on fundamentalism, in, in a journal called Reviews in American History, published by Johns Hopkins University Press, Machen's alma mater, um, the university sponsoring that journal. And in this review, um, Miller has a reference calling Machen quite loony. That's a direct quote. Um, and Ernest Sandine wrote a book, a very important book on fundamentalism, published in 1970 by the University of Chicago Press. Sandine was a Wheaton grad, so he was evangelical and maybe should have been sympathetic. But he said that Machen uh, was, was characterized by a perverse obstinacy. That's another, another quote. Um, so there's a sense in which church historians anywhere, religious historians, think of Machen as being somewhat uh, mean. Um, and, then that's, and that's obviously a way that you could interpret his fighting. Now, what about Orthodox Presbyterians? What do they, have they said about Machen? And here, uh, it's interesting, and I don't think it's too much to say, that Machen may be not perverse, but still pretty mean. Um, now, on the 50th anniversary of the OPC in 1986, Mark Knoll was writing about um, Machen and, and the history of the OPC. Mark Knoll at the time was an elder at the congregation in Wheaton, Illinois, which was undergoing the beginning of some of its difficulties, which led to a split in that church. But um, Knoll said in this article that Machen had undermined the effectiveness of those reformed and evangelical individuals who chose to remain at Princeton Seminary with the Presbyterian Mission Board and in the Northern Presbyterian Church. So Machen is somewhat um, hurt the cause of conservatism in the Presbyterian Church. So that's one way of uh, Knoll's looking at Machen's influence. So, in effect, Machen was wrong to leave and set up these rival institutions because he was undermining conservatism in the PCUSA. Um, 
Noel also adds that Machen left successors ill-equipped to deal with the more practical matters of evangelism, social outreach, and devotional nurture. Um, so there's an estimate that, that where of, of, of deficiencies in Machen's um, work, and again, you could attribute some of this to his militancy or his constant um, fighting. Marsden, George Marsden, a son of the OPC, the son of uh, Robert Marsden, Robert Marsden who served in a variety of capacities uh, for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, was on the, the Trinity Hymnal um, Committee, uh, actually died while in, in that service. Um, so Marsden, George Marsden knew well the OPC and its background in and, um, and his estimate of Machen was not entirely positive. Uh, he wrote a piece for the Princeton Seminary Bulletin in the early 1990s, I believe, and expressed re- similar reservations as those that Noel expressed at the 50th anniversary. And he talked about Machen's cantankerousness. Um, so uh, Marsden thought that there was a propensity on, on Machen's part to fight um, Marsden conceded that Machen was, had merit in fighting liberalism, but that he had a personality that only his good friends found appealing. And he stood for a narrow, old-school confessionalism and exclusivism that many people today find appalling. Um, that, those, are, those are words of, of Marsden in this article. So Machen's personality was unappealing, and his, and his cause was also unappealing. Marsden. Now he's he's writing this, of course, in the in the context of a Princeton Seminary, Princeton Seminary publication. So these these are words that probably they would like to hear, but it's still to to talk about Machen's personality. I I think is is um, is questionable, um, but uh, that's that's an, another assessment from someone who uh, was in the Christian Reform is in the Christian Reform Church and was a son of the OPC. Now one one further. Um, piece of evidence here comes from John Frame, who was for many years professor at Westminster at both in Philadelphia and California, and also a minister of the OPC. Um, And in his book of 1986, uh, I think it was 86, entitled Evangelical Reunion, Frame was very much uh, expressing his discomfort with the militancy that had characterized the OPC since its founding. And he believed that all conservative Protestant denominations should come together in one large evangelical reunion, hence the the name of the book. But also in a festschrift for Alistair McGrath, Frame wrote a piece that's been widely cited called Machen's Warrior Children. And um, he registers another complaint similar to Marsden and Knoll. Frame writes, the Machen movement, so Machen is a movement, was born in the controversy over liberal theology. I have no doubt Frame writes that Machen and his colleagues were right to reject this theology and to fight it. But it is arguable that once the Machenites found themselves in a true Presbyterian church, they were unable to moderate their martial impulses. Being in a church without liberals to fight, they turned on each other. So so again, the characteristic here is fighting, and these Machenites are going to fight wherever they go. Um, and I would also, I'm not going to develop this at length, but if I had more time, I would. I think Carl Truman, in his, his introduction to the, the recent reprint of Christianity and Liberalism, implicitly falls into this kind of trap by, by linking Machen's critique of liberalism to European 
um, theological developments and trends, which is in many respects uh, right to do, but without noticing the Presbyterian context for Christianity and liberalism for Machen's fights, um, you then, you, you do, it, it sets into motion an expectation that Machen's only fighting liberalism and not really concerned with something much more on the ground having to do with the Presbyterian church itself and the institutions that Machen helped to found, which were to preserve this Presbyterianism that he understood that I'm going to argue for was old school Presbyterianism. So anyway, those are some, some ways in which um, Orthodox Presbyterians or people with, with associations to the OPC have regarded Machen. Um, so let's, let's then uh, ask whether these, um, these people speak for Orthodox Presbyterians at large. And this is not just a historiographical question, a question of how we understand history or someone's greatness or importance. This has very much to do with how we understand the origins of the OPC and what the OPC stood for. It's, it's certainly plausible to say that one of Machen's um, most important uh, accomplishments was, was helping to found the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So if Machen's cause was somewhat skewed by this militancy, then, then that, that seeps into our understanding of the OPC as well. I mean, the OPC then was kind of set up in this course or trajectory that was always going to be at war with everyone else and even devour them, themselves. Or if you have a, an understanding that what Machen was doing was positive in his battle with liberalism and, and his efforts to try to promote Presbyterianism and reform a Presbyterian church, then, then you might have a different understanding of the OPC and the way that the OPC has developed over time. And you can account for all those controversies as actually perhaps being a good thing. So it's important to see that uh, what was the, in, in this, this point here, number one under, under 2B, um, what was the OPC fighting all these years? Um, within the first year of the OPC's existence, there was a split between the Orthodox Presbyterians and the Bible Presbyterians. Um, and so that's one reason why people were saying these, these people just couldn't get along with anyone. I'll come back to talk more about that. But so there was a fight originally even among the Orthodox Presbyterians themselves leading to the, the formation of the Bible Presbyterian Synod led by Carl McIntyre and one of their more famous uh, ministers also, someone who went with that was Francis Schaeffer. Um, but also, Orthodox Presbyterians were fighting liberal Presbyterians, even after they'd left the church. There's a series of articles always in the Presbyterian Guardian about why conservatives in the PCUSA, the mainline church, need to leave and come into the OPC. And Mr. Galbraith's pamph pamphlet, uh, Why the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, written in the 1960s at the time of the Confession of 67, is still making that same sort of argument. If you're in the mainline church, you are associated with unbelief. There's a corporate responsibility that you have to, to flee that sort of unbelief. And so even Mr. Galbraith is making a plea there in the 60s for conservatives in the, in the Presbyterian Church to leave and join the OPC. <clears throat> now, it's interesting that after 1967, I think it's plausible to argue that the OPC lost its fight and lost its nerve. And the big reason for that is that in 67, when the PCUSA changed its confessional status and its confessional documents, they introduced the Confession of 67, which was a Bardian understanding of the Word of God and Bardian understanding of theology, 
more generally, and they also changed their confessional standards to have a book of confessions, not just the Westminster Confession and catechisms, but a book of confessions, including the Barman Declaration, which was a Bardian confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and they, and they included a lot of good things, but they included some bad things as well. But anyway, the OPC could no longer say that it's either us or them, because the other church had changed. And so they were a different kind of American Presbyterian church, and the OPC was now had no, no one to fight anymore. So it really lost its target. And I do think that after 67, there's an important shift in the sensibility of the OPC that the fight is no longer worth fighting. And that explains why, um, perhaps why Knoll and Marsden and Frame and others would, would regard the original fights of Machen as more perverse than perhaps legitimate. Um, so that's an important shift. Uh, and if you want to follow that more, uh, should the Lord tarry, um, the 75th anniversary of the OPC, there's a volume on the OPC history coming out that, uh, that I've had the privilege to write, and, and that argument about the importance of 1967 and the OPC sort of losing its fighting nerve over the changes in the PCUSA is developed in, at much greater length. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can buy the book. Um, please, the, the historian committee would, would say. Um, so now let's look at some factors that would set, um, affect um, why... Um, uh, people might regard the OPC this way. Um, Charlie Dennison um, <clears throat> used, to, used to put a very important way for, factor for understanding the OPC is how you regard evangelicalism. So Charlie would put up the squares. Some of you have already seen this before when I've taught, but... Um, um, this is, I'm sorry, this, this is sort of the typical way of understanding evangelicalism and the Reformed faith. <clears throat> the Reformed faith is a subset of evangelicalism. Um, and so the Re Reformed faith or the OPC has all sorts of things in common with American evangelicals. Um, and, and so the OPC is just one among several communions that are all conservative in the United States. Um, and this, this really would, in some ways, be the scheme of the National Association of Evangelicals. Um, the, o, the OPC, I'm not even sure, I can't remember, I've written about this, but the OPC, I'm not sure if we were ever members of the NAE. But I think a lot of Orthodox Presbyterians have sometimes thought of themselves as evangelical and as perhaps thinking we should be in the National Association of Evangelicals because of this sort of paradigm. The, this other one is... Um, where there's overlap, but they're not the same thing, and it's not a subset. Um, and so Charlie was arguing much more for this sort of perspective, where the Reformed faith was distinct from evangelicalism. And there, there were, of course, truths that they held in common, but not nearly, this, not nearly the same that would be reflected by this par paradigm. I would throw up one more, and this would be Protestantism and evangelicalism is a very small little um, development within the larger Protestant uh, occurrence that, that comes out of the Reformation. 
I mean, when you look at evangelicalism, the way it developed in the 18th century in the, of the revivals, um, Wesley and Edwards were very important. Jonathan, John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards were very important to this, this new sort of evangelical Protestantism and emphasis upon born-again uh, religion. And they are coming out of a, a Puritan background. And so the Puritans were one slice of Protestants, and evangelicals are even a smaller slice, slice of Puritans. So evangelicalism, to look at evangelicalism as this big monolith that everybody else can become a part of, really does a disservice to the actual historical de- development, which is, this is the 16th century, Protestantism is a pretty big thing, Lutherans and Anglicans and Reformed are different in, in certain ways, and evangelicalism develops within a smaller subset of Puritans, which is a smaller subset of Reformed. So, in some ways, you could actually reverse this one, and it should be Reformed is the big umbrella, and evangelicalism is the small one. Um, and actually, I think that's a, that's a much better conception because if you just look at the length of our confessions, they're much, they're much longer, much broader, much more comprehensive than evangelicalism, which has a, a smaller um, uh, set of defining beliefs. So that's, that's, um, that's an important thing to consider, though, whether we think of evangelicalism as inherently conservative um, and, and therefore the OPC is just a part of it, or whether we think of the Reformed faith as something that's different from evangelicalism. This will affect the way we understand the OPC. The second way, though, and this really shouldn't be a separate D, this should be uh, two under, um, under factors affecting assess- assessment, the old school factor. Um, the OPC has had ambivalence historically about old Princeton partly because of Van Til's critique of the Princeton apologetic, uh, presuppositionalism versus a kind of evidentialism. Uh, There's also been ambivalence because Princeton was part of the mainline church and part of the perhaps affluence and cultural um, uh, establishment uh, in a way that the OPC has found uncomfortable. Um, And maybe Princeton was broader than it should have been. At least there there are certain... Um, reasons for Orthodox Presbyterians sort of sometimes questioning the uh, influence um, of old Princeton. But I think it's really important to to locate Machen, of course, at old Princeton and fighting for the concerns that made old Princeton tick. And it's very important to remember that Princeton was an old-school Presbyterian institution. And it actually was more old school and longer than any other old school seminary. By the 1920s, when at least the majority of the faculty at Princeton were still old school in orientation, by the 1920s, places like uh, Union in Virginia, an old school institution, or Columbia in South Carolina, had already begun to show signs of, of a certain kind of liberalism and a certain movement away from old school convictions. So Princeton really did defend Calvinism much longer than anyone else in the United States. There was a greater interest in Presbyterian polity and Reformed worship there than other places. Um, And this is where the the opposition to the reunion of 1869 between the old school and the new school was the strongest. Charles Hodge was one of the leading opponents of reunion with with the new school in 1869. And in many respects, that reunion was what undid Princeton Seminary. 
and the sort of old-school Presbyterianism that Princeton defended. One other factor in favor of old Princeton is that it clothed and fed Gerhardus Voss. Literally. But it did hire him, and it did, it did embrace Voss's biblical theology. So, so there's all sorts of reasons for having a positive assessment of, of old Princeton, even though, of course, it wasn't perfect and it could have improved on some things. Um, and so it's also then possible to look at the OPC as the continuation of the old school church or of old school Presbyterianism. And interestingly enough, when you look at um, the, the history of the OPC, and George Marsden himself wrote about this when he was a student at Westminster in the early 1960s under the supervision of Paul Woolley, um, Marsden wrote about the split between Bible Presbyterians and Orthodox Presbyterians in 1937 as a split between old school and new school Presbyterian forces. Um, and I think Marsden is still correct that the, that the Bible Presbyterians represented a new school Presbyterian, a kind of Americanized Presbyterian, revivalistic Presbyterian faith, and the uh, OPC represented an old school sort of Presbyterian Faith, um, and the, the, the way you see this was in the, the major uh, art pieces that that led to that division. One of the pieces of the, of the division between Bible and Orthodox Presbyterians was over the Confessional Revision of 1903. The Bible Presbyterians wanted to retain that revision partly for property uh, cases; they could make a better case in the courts to retain their property if they said that they were still holding on to the Confession of the PCUSA. But also, the Orthodox Presbyterians, led by the faculty at Westminster, said, we don't want to have anything to do with that revision of the, of the Westminster Confession. And again, Warfield at Old Princeton had been one of the chief opponents of the revision of 1903 because it softened, if not undermined, the Calvinism of the Westminster Standards. That was one factor. Premillennialism or, or even dispensationalism was another factor. Some of the faculty at Westminster had written critically of premillennialism, and this made McIntyre and Buswell, Oliver J. J. Oliver Buswell, the president of Wheaton College, suspicious about what Westminster and the Orthodox Presbyterians were doing. Um, whether McIntyre and Buswell were fully dispensationalists or not um, is another question, but still um, there was a leaning toward dispensationalism among Bible Presbyterians that again, and, and Westminster and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church were moving much more in the direction of an amillennialism, even though at, at, the, at the Assembly of 1937, people were arguing for eschatological liberty, liberty over how to interpret the end times because the confession itself doesn't really specify whether it's pre-mill, post-mill, or amill. Um, so that was another factor. A third factor, though, and the one that, the straw that broke the camel's back was that an overture that said the OPC should be a, a, a dry or prohibitionist communion. Um, and many of the uh, faculty at, at Westminster argued for Christian liberty and that the church shouldn't take a stand in, in prescribing as a sin something that the Bible didn't say was a sin. So that was, that was the third strike, and, and at that point, the Bible Presbyterians were out. So anyway, what's interesting and why I have this clockwork uh, phenomenon going on here is that, okay, 1837 was a split between the old school and new school in the 19th century, and 1869 was the reunion of the old school and new school, at least in the north, in the 19th century. 1937, 100 years later, the Bible Presbyterians and Orthodox Presbyterians split, a kind of new school, old school division, and in 1969, that 
split almost was undone with a reunion. And in 1969, the OPC began to enter into talks with the RPCES, which was largely Bible Presbyterian in background, to enter into a merger. Now, that merger eventually failed in 1975, not for a lack of a majority of votes. It didn't have a supermajority of votes that were necessary to achieve that reunion with the RPCES. But it's interesting that almost 30 years apart brings efforts to reunite the churches, and so the Orthodox Presbyterians and a large section of Bible Presbyterians almost reunited uh, almost 30 years after their division. And I would argue, and I do argue in, in, the, in the history of the OPC that I've been working on, that when uh, those reunion talks were responsible for the OPC recovering a historical awareness, and what did the OPC stand for in 1936? And what was the split between the Orthodox Presbyterians and the Bible Presbyterians all about. And there were many in the OPC that then that became concerned that we want to hold on to what the OPC stood for. That split of 37 was important for our identity as Orthodox Presbyterians. Um, and actually it leads in 1972 to a, an overture from the Presbyterian of New Jersey to call for a comprehensive history of the OPC. So it's really at that point that a historical consciousness emerges in the OPC and an effort to recover, perhaps, um, what, what Machen was doing. Um, and eventually, uh, Charlie Dennison becomes a historian in the 1980s, the full first f sort of really active historian on behalf of the OPC. And lo and behold, there's this young man <clears throat> in Baltimore who um, can't seem to get out of graduate school and is writing a dissertation on Machen. And, and so there's, there's a kind of providential uh, harmonic uh, convergence uh, with my own work and Charlie's interest in the history of the OPC. So anyway, that's, that's the old, old school factor. And I do think it's important to think about the OPC as being a, um, uh, a continuation of old school Presbyterianism. So let's then look at Machen's legacy. And really, it's important to put it this way, I think. Where was Christianity liberalism headed? Or where was it going? Um, there are those, PCUSA evangelicals, who would say, 1923 was great, the publication of Christianity and liberalism, keep fighting liberalism, but don't leave the church. And this was, I mean, this, this mentality still exists in, in, in the world. I, I was struck when I spoke at a conference in Omaha back in April. It was at an EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, that had recently left the PCUSA. But these people were very interested in Machen and had me come and speak in part because of my work on Machen, and they were very interested in Christian liberalism, that studied Christian liberalism in their Sunday school classes. So there's still, a, there's still something in Machen's Christian liberalism that resonates with conservatives in the PCUSA. But, and even though this church had left to go into the EPC, there's still a re great reluctance to go all the way and leave the church or to enter in the, into the kind of communion that the OPC turned out to be. So that's one, that's one sort of stopping point. Christian liberalism was headed for a critique of liberalism, and that's it. A second one is um, PCUSA conservatives. 1929 was a, a good place to stop. And here I would include people like Samuel Craig and Clarence McCartney. 29 is important because these men were, were on board with the founding of Westminster Seminary as a place to train conservative Presbyterian pastors for the PCUSA. 
but they didn't like the independent board, and they didn't want to go all the way to the OPC. So they would follow Machen from Christianity and liberalism to Westminster, but stop there. And then there are, there are the Reformed evangelicals, who uh, maybe someone like Frame or even like a McIntyre, who would go all the way to 36 with, with Machen. And so they'd go from Christianity and liberalism to Westminster to the OPC. But they would then not go any farther because they might leave and go into the Bible Presbyterian Synod or maybe eventually go into, into the PCOS, PCA uh, the way John Frame did. Um, so because of an ambivalence about this fighting that continued to persist in the OPC, the fighting that led to the split in 1937 between the Orthodox Presbyterians and, and the Bible Presbyterians, which then leads to the Orthodox Presbyterian Orthodox Presbyterians, someone like Charlie Dennison, who goes willing to go with Machen from Christianity Liberalism 23 to Westminster in 29 to the OPC in 1936 and to stand with the OPC in the split of 1937. So those are sort of different stopping points when you look at where Christianity and liberalism was headed. But it's really important to, to, to think about where was Machen going when he wrote Christianity and liberalism. Did he simply want to critique liberalism or did he want to do something more than that? So um, another piece to consider about Machen's legacy is this idea of reformed militancy. And first of all, it's important to understand, as I've tried to emphasize, I guess, last week when we, I spent a little time dissecting the, uh, the stanzas of a church's one foundation, that the church is always in the state of militancy until we reach our rest when the Lord returns and enter into the church triumphant. Um, but Machen was very much aware that the church was a militant place. And here I have this quotation from on the outline from uh, The Task of Christian Scholarship, an address he gave in um, Northern Ireland in 1931. Men tell us that instead of engaging in controversy about doctrine, we ought to seek the power of the living Holy Spirit. A few years ago, we had in America a celebration of the anniversary of Pentecost. At that time, our Presbyterian Church was engaged in a conflict, the gist of which concerned the question of the truth of the Bible. Was the church going to insist or was it not going to insist that its ministers should believe that the Bible is true? At that time of decision, and almost it seemed as though to evade the issue, many sermons were preached on the subject of the Holy Spirit. Do you think that these sermons, if they were really preached in that way, were approved by him with whom they dealt? I fear not, my friends. A man can hardly receive the power of the Holy Spirit if he seeks to evade the question whether the blessed book that the Spirit has given is true or false. Again, many, it should be, tell us that our preaching should be positive and not negative, that we can preach the truth without attacking error. But if we should follow that advice, we shall have to close our Bible and desert its teachings. The New Testament is a polemic book almost from beginning to end. Some years ago, I was in a company of teachers of the Bible in the colleges and other educational institutions of America. One of the most eminent theological professors in the country made an address. In it, he admitted that there are unfortunate controversies about doctrine in the epistles of Paul. But, said he, in effect, the real essence of Paul's teaching is found in the hymn to Christian love in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And we can avoid controversy today if we will only devote the chief attention to that inspiring hymn. In reply, I am bound to say that the example was singularly ill-chosen. That hymn to Christian love is in the midst of a great polemic passage. 
It would, be, it would never have been written if Paul had been opposed to controversy with error in the church. It was because his soul was stirred within him by a wrong use of the spiritual gifts that he was able to write that glorious hymn. So it is always in the church. Every really great Christian utterance, it may, may almost be said, is born in controversy. It is when men have felt compelled to take a stand against error that, that they have risen to the really great heights in the celebration of truth. So Machen clearly had a sense that the church was always going to be a militant place and that it wasn't going to stop simply by founding a new church, that there would still be controversy in that church. And it's important to remember that, lest I give the wrong impression, Machen was not alive for the split with the Bible Presbyterians. Machen died January 1st, 1937. The split came at, at the assembly that met in the late spring of 37. So, you know, it's only speculation where he would have been, but he would have been on the right side. No, don't worry. Uh, now, Machen, it's, it's important to say, though, about this, that Machen didn't like fighting. If people get the sense, this is why I object to, to Marsden's interpretation that his personality sort of thrived on this or something. Yeah, okay, he may have, may, Machen may have been lying when he wrote this to his, fa- his mother, I think. But anyway, I have a quotation here from a letter from 1929. I hate this whole ecclesiastical business for my part, with all my soul. If I consulted my own desires, I should keep out of it. I should write conservative books and enjoy the plaudits, perhaps, of liberals and conservatives both. But in my inmost soul, I should know that I had been unfaithful to Christ. I do not think that we can avoid contending for his cause just because there are dangers to our souls in that contention. So, Machen was tired of fighting even by 1929. He had been at it for almost nine years, going back to his first General Assembly of 1920. And he still had seven more years to go. So, um, you know, I don't, th- he, I don't think he took great delight in it. And I think he could have probably um, been a lot more productive in other ways had he not been engaged in the fight. But the productivity that did come from that is significant, especially if you think the OPC is a good thing, which I, which I do. Then I have this other quotation here, which, which is a little bit from my dissertation, which has these lines from one of his letters. The decision to leave Princeton, he explained, centered on this question, should the directors and, print and professors keep away from the General Assembly and avoid opposing the ecclesiastical machine the one prime requisite for anyone taking part in this movement, Machen told one timid supporter, is that he shall be a fighter. Westminster, he wrote to another, would die of inaction unless it kept up the ecclesiastical fight. So, Machen was very much concerned about reformed identity, both positive and negative. And what doesn't seem to occur to people is that since the Reformation, reformed Protestantism has been something different from Lutheranism, something different from Episcopalianism, something different from Wesleyanism, something different from Evangelicalism. Just, it's just a, a simple historical definitional fact that this has been something different. And therefore, if you're going to assert what you are, you're going to assert how you're different from other people, which means in some ways saying why you differ and what's wrong with that other position. It's not necessarily a bad thing to, to point out how you, you differ or disagree with other people. That's not a sign of perverse obstinacy, as some people want to put it. It's it just, again, it, it's basic to, to definitions. So ever since the Reformation, Reform Protestantism has been this way. But I'd also argue that the traditions that have informed the OPC the most 
both old school Presbyterianism as well as Dutch Calvinism in America with the Van Tilian, Vossian heritage, the Dutch Calvinists were not exactly opposed to fighting either. They came out of several splits themselves. I mean, they came out of similar sorts of efforts in the, in the Dutch church in the 19th century to oppose liberalism and set up new churches. So this kind of opposition to liberalism and setting up new churches that will continue to fight the good fight is part of um, the OPC's DNA. Um, now, uh, one last quotation here about isn't the Reformed faith grand? As you may know, um, Machen wrote those words Sorry, on his deathbed, um, isn't a reform, reform faith granter. He said those words to an, to an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor in North Dakota, um, and 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 that really, I think, has characterized uh, the OPC throughout much of its history, especially in the the fighting parts of it. That's not to say that that the people who fight do so for the best reasons that they couldn't be. Uh, wiser in the way they conduct the fight, but there is this sense that the Reformed faith is grand um, and it's worth fighting for uh, because it's true and it's true to, to our Lord. So this last quotation comes from um, Machen's defense of Princeton Seminary. Um, and I think it, it captures pretty well this sense of, isn't the Reformed faith grand, but it's 12, well, 10 years almost before he, he did die. And it shows that even back then, he, he was clearly moving in the direction of, of a, um, this understanding of, of, of the Reformed faith that would lead to a, a new church, should the old church not be reformed. So, as over against such a reduced Christianity, we at Princeton stand for the full glorious gospel of divine grace that God has given us in his word and that is summarized in the confession of faith of our church. We cannot agree with those who say that although they are members of the Presbyterian Church, they have not the slightest zeal to have the Presbyterian Church extended through the length and breadth of the world. As for us, we hold the faith of the Presbyterian Church, the great Reformed faith that is set forth in the Westminster Confession to be true. And holding it to be true, we hold that it is intended for the whole world. But it would be the greatest mistake to think that the issue with regard to Princeton Seminary stops there. It would be the greatest mistake to suppose that the difference concerns merely the question whether we are to stand for the full heritage of our Reformed faith or to be, or to be content, or to content ourselves, excuse me, in the statement of what is essential with some lesser creed. No, the difference cuts even deeper than that. It concerns not merely the question as to the content of the doctrine that we are to set forth, but rather the attitude that is to be assumed with regard to all doctrine as such. It concerns not merely the question whether we are to teach this or that, but the question of whether what we teach we are to teach with our whole hearts and in clear-cut opposition to the present drift of our times. So this wasn't just a positive presentation of Reformed Protestantism. It also came with it pointing out the way that Reformed Protestantism was in conflict with other ideas, whether Christian ideas or non-Christian ideas. So I would argue that you can't have Christianity and liberalism of Machen without having Westminster, the Independent Board, and the OPC. It's, it's a historical anomaly to try to, it's like taking the, trying to get the, the, the kernel from the husk. The whole thing is all bound up together. That's what Machen argued about the New Testament. 
And I would argue the same in some ways could be applied to Machen himself, although I understand there, you know, that's a little hairy getting into that kind of analogy. But Christian liberalism was headed to this, in this direction that led to the OPC and even to the split with Bible Presbyterians in 1937. Machen believed in a comprehensive faith because the Bible's truths themselves were comprehensive, and he believed in a ministry that would t- teach and proclaim the Bible's faith. So that is to say he believed in a Reformed faith a re- and a Reformed church in a period of redemptive history that where the church would always be in conflict. And so I would conclude in this way to say that Christian liberalism was not simply a, an argument against liberalism. It also had a positive direction to it, which was to uh, yield a truly Reformed or Presbyterian church. Any Quick comment or question, relatively quick. Yes. What would make what would Warfield think? Um, well, I mean, Warfield said that you couldn't split rotten wood. That was his characterization of the PCUSA circa nineteen. I guess. So I think he, whether he would have left is another question. People didn't leave because they had pensions in the PCUSA. It was a difficult situation. It wasn't an easy thing to do to leave, but anyway. We should uh, close in, in prayer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia, and thank you for listening to this entire series on J. Gresham Machen. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to read more content from Daryl Hart, please visit him online at oldlife.org. If you'd like to see more and hear more from Reformed Forum, you can visit us on the web at reformedforum.org. We hope you enjoyed this series, and we continue to look forward to bringing you more content in the area of church history. Stay tuned to more episodes of Historia Ecclesia. Thank you for listening.